Are you re- are you recording? Yep. Oh, perfect. This is always the best intro material. The part where I'm not prepared. So you have an intro, Mr. Jerk? Do I? I did other research earlier today, but I don't think I actually wrote the intro. <laughs> Hold on. On today's podcast, we're going to talk First Amendment and how it relates to commercial platforms and social media. That sounds so boring, though. Oh, and it's please. not. It's exciting. It's very exciting. Welcome to Brilliant, a podcast about innovation, design, and experience. My name is Justin Jurek. I'm Vice President of User Experience at Mignani. With me, as always, is Justin Dobb, a President of Mignani. How's it going, Justin? It's going very well. Good. Uh, very, very, very excited. We have a very special guest yeah. with us today. So, uh, for the record, would you please state your name yeah. and your occupation? <laughs> you want me to do this for real? Yeah, totally for real. Can. Okay. I'm Lenny Gale, G-A-I-L. I'm an attorney at law in the city of Chicago. And what is the name of the firm? The, uh, ah, yes, we like the plug. It's Massey and Gale LLP, Limited Liability Partnership. Would you say you are the managing partner of Massey and Gale LLP? I, is that I, what it is? I can get away with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, full disclosure: a uh, 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 family member by marriage, um, uh, which is to his chagrin most days. <laughs> I've improved the quality of your life. Let's yes. leave it like that. <laughs> Agreed. So, uh, Lenny, thanks for coming in. I know um, this is kind of related to or an extension of a discussion we had on the last podcast, which was getting into a little bit of, of First Amendment discussions as it related to YouTube and Facebook and now subsequently Spotify and Twitter deactivating accounts for InfoWars, Alex Jones's conglomerate media conglomerate i don't know what you would call it i guess it kind of is a media conglomerate a uh, sideshow sure that's another opinion and we were talking about it a little bit the first amendment and how it does or does not protect individuals from certain actions right and you know lenny lenny heard a little bit of that and he wanted to to inform us on that yeah, so i will say uh, i had an email he says i'd listen to the podcast we, we need we need to talk no that's <laughs> not true i my email was i listen to the podcast you guys are awesome <laughs> some might say brilliant oh and that's and let's talk about the first amendment a little bit great so what do you want to talk about well i mean let's start with something simple right the the first amendment by its terms says congress shall make no law and so the one thing i think we can agree on is whatever is being done with alec with is it Alex Jones? Alex, Alex Jones. Jones. Any hate speech and so forth really has nothing to do, at least in the platforms, with Congress or Correct. the government directing someone to do something. There are speech interests at stake, and people may choose to run their businesses more or less protective or promoting those speech interests. But I think, you know, in some technical sense, it's not really about the First Amendment. Right. There's no claim the government has done something wrong or Alex Jones's actual First Amendment rights are being violated. Yeah, and I think that we were kind of talking about it in that context that I think there's a lot of misinterpretation of what freedom of speech means just from a civics perspective, right? That that's there so that the government can't put a a boot on your speech and stop you from saying something. Um, It's not there to protect you from the consequences of your own language as it relates to other parties. Right. Though it's interesting, and I know you and and so many of your um, millions of listeners probably already know. Um, You know, the Supreme Court last term heard a case about whether or not a cake maker could – a bakery could refuse to make a cake for a gay couple that was getting married. Right. Now, there was no 
government action there, the litigation was over whether or not the cake maker had the legal right to say yes to heterosexual couples getting married and no to homosexual couples. Now, you may say the government's not doing anything there. Well, actually, the government background there was the idea that you can't discriminate against people on the basis of sex. You, we all right. would agree, I think, that a bakery couldn't say no to a black couple and yes to a white couple. And so the government's hand gets in mm -hmm. in some ways that you wouldn't otherwise expect. And, and, and to give credit to the people who are thinking about Alex Jones, they may be thinking about things like that. They may be thinking that, well, what Facebook or Twitter or Spotify might not be able to do is say no to a certain type of speech, a certain viewpoint. Right. And yes to others. That's a, you know, it's an interesting legal question. I think the answer is they can, but, but let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, where I think we're getting into interesting territory, right, is that the stakes are so much bigger. So Facebook has gotten so huge and so influential. And, you know, they've been playing both sides of the platform card. They say we're not uh, a provider of editorial. We are simply a platform pe for people. However, they want the benefits of being both of those things. And so um, th they're just to a scale that the government is, is taking note of them as an issue and they're trying to work out like will they get regulated my my gut is eventually there will be some regulation on how they can manipulate or sell user data to advertisers or let third parties access that data because mm -hmm. the scale is too big it's like sure. the commons right it's become <laughs> it's become a utility in some ways it exactly that's where i was actually going to say think of um you, with your own private money, build a bridge across the river, but there's nobody who's built a bridge within 350 miles in either direction. You have it. The law calls it an essential facility. Mm. Now, you didn't do anything wrong building the bridge, but if you start pumping up your prices too much, you will, kind of as Justin has said, the government will take note, and it may well regulate you, and the law does permit the regulation or like a utility, right? The electric utility has the monopoly into sending electricity into the house for the last mile or something like that. Yeah. And, and in consideration for that monopoly, the government says, here's what you will charge. And there's process around what you will charge. And so to your point, Justin, we can envision a world where the government says to Facebook, you can decide who you want to publish and not publish, but here are the rules you're going to have to follow in doing so. And you're right. The more they do it, the more they run that risk of inviting the regulation. You know, the other thing that I think is interesting to get back to kind of like why a company or an entity like InfoWars is in this position in the first place, right, is what triggered action by any of these entities, right? YouTube, to talk a little bit about kind of overall their infrastructure, right, the InfoWars delivery mechanism primarily was through YouTube, right, posting these videos via a channel through YouTube. And we've talked a little bit about this before, Dob, about kind of owning your own delivery mechanism. They're piggybacking on top of another platform's terms of service. And within those terms of service, YouTube has some clauses about safety for the individual, threatening speech, hate speech specifically, things like that, that they have the right to deactivate an account when you sign up, when you agree to those terms of service. They could even make the terms of service saying... I'll cut you off whenever I want for good reason, bad reason, or no reason or another. Right. It's, it's as you, as Justin said on the last podcast callback, you own your distribution. Right. So you're here by the by my permission. 
Yeah, Correct. and one of the angles that I was thinking of when we were talking about it before is from an innovation standpoint, if I come up with a new product, right, and I'm promoting that product through these channels, however, the incumbent uh, leader in the industry is spending a lot of money in advertising on these platforms. It's very simple to see that there's a moment where that advertiser says, I think you need to cut them off. I think you need to throttle mm-hmm. that person's speech. And there's nothing stopping those companies from doing that. And, and which, what I was going to say uh, a moment ago is the Milton Friedman true conservatives would say, well, the fact that these guys are not promoting the speech anymore is really the market working. Correct. It's saying their economics flipped. It's no longer in their economic interest mm-hmm. to put in notices about the, you know, the child ring being run out of the bottom of the pizza parlor. Right. That's bad for business. And we're cutting it down and let the invisible hand decide what speech should be permitted or not. And Facebook has the economic interest to make that call the quote right way. So speaking of uh, innovation, I wanted to bring up another quote, free speech issue, Elon Musk. Mm. We've, we talked a <laughs> lot about Elon Musk on this podcast because there's there's half of Elon Musk that I think is, you know, the, the Thomas Edison of our day and, you know, maybe even more important. <laughs> there's the other half that is um, uh, pathologically, uh, basically risk blind. But now he's the CEO of a public company. So. Uh, there's been a lot of question of, you know, some of it's not questioned. The SEC says you can't say on Twitter you're taking I your company it. private. Yeah. No, he said he was going, he was going to, to. You at 420 and he had funding. So these are material kind of market influencing statements of fact that, in fact, were not statements of fact. So that one's pretty clear cut. But last week he went on the Joe Rogan podcast and sat there for three hours and he smoked a joint and talked a lot about a crazy stuff that he believes like we're potentially... The, the odds are we're all living in a simulation on a computer and so wow. you know, yeah. like how matrixy. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. So I'm just curious, you know, from, from the legal standpoint, you know, like where do we draw that line for a CEO of a publicly held company? When is he CEO? When is he just, you know, charismatic genius uh, having a good time? I think there's a straightforward legal answer to that, which we may or may not find satisfying. There's a Supreme Court case called TSC Industries, which says that information that is of relevance to an ordinary investor, to the reasonable investor, is information that has to be shared equally, publicly, and simultaneously. And so I think the answer is if a reasonable investor would be interested in Elon Musk's ruminations about X, Y, and Z, whether under the influence of THC or not, they have to be what's released according to, it's called Reg FD, and in a very specified Mm -hmm. manner. And so- So like press release? I think it's on the website. It's typically, you know, we've- There's a few mechanisms for delivery. An analyst call that's available to the web. It's publicized, that it's coming, it's regular, it's announced ahead of time so that for obvious reasons, you don't know, you don't privilege certain people with knowing, hey, Elon's going to talk at this time. And so I hear you in the sense that it's an interesting question about when he's acting in a certain way. But I think the subjective question of whether he's acting, the law removes that and says, if it's relevant to an investor, you've got to tell everybody. CEO health, right? This mm-hmm. is a relatively mm-hmm. rich of interest. The great Jamie Dimon had, uh, I think, throat cancer or something like that. They're very careful about how they disseminate that information because if you own J.P. Morgan stock, Jamie Dimon's health is a material bit of information. Well, right. this was the, the ding on Apple when Steve Jobs hid his cancer for eight months yeah. to a year. It's interesting. So I want to ask you, and you can say I can't talk about this. Yeah. 
Um, you had a very interesting kind of run-in with the First Amendment with a recent case of yours. I'm happy to talk about it. So, so why don't you just give us a little background um, of what the case was about and how it ended up and, and what your thoughts are and all that. Yes, though I'll clarify only to say it's not ended. Oh. There was a setback. I- Oh, you're, okay. it's, it's going to be appealed. It is being appealed. Yes. So uh, we represent Joel and Mary Rich, who are the parents of Seth Rich. Seth Rich worked for the DNC and was killed on the streets of Washington. Late at night, uh, uh, his wallet was um, taken out of his pocket. I mean, it, the police's operating assumption of belief is that it was a robbery. But because he was from the DNC and because he was dead, there was an opportunity for people who had a political agenda to claim that he did certain things. And in particular, it began in the periphery, the sort of literal loony aspects of the Internet, and it got more and more central until it was publicized in an article by Fox News that he was the source of the DNC leaks. And the claim was, and Fox's article quoted an FBI agent, Um, as telling them that he was the source, that the leaks were on his computer and so forth, all of which is a heck of a good story because the FBI hadn't started, hadn't done an investigation. Mm. They didn't have his computer and there was zero evidence that in fact he was the leak. So we brought suit on behalf of his parents against Fox. And the interesting legal question is, can basically the parents of someone who is deceased bring a claim for what we were uh, identified, the cause of action was intentional infliction of emotional distress. Our argument was is that Fox was completely indifferent to the effects of its lies on the parents, that in fact it's legally cognizable and they have suffered literally diagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder and so forth. And we lost uh, in the district court because the judge ruled at the very outset of the case that the allegations we made were insufficiently extreme and outrageous. And so even if we proved what we claimed, the judge's ruling was that wouldn't suffice to constitute an extreme and outrageous conduct. What made it a First Amendment interesting question is, of course, we're suing Fox. And so there's this concept of breathing room under the First Amendment that news gatherers should be able to do it. And, And our point was you know, you lose your First Amendment protection when you're doing something recklessly or intentionally. And the judge, we never got to the First Amendment issues in that case, but it's on appeal now, and hopefully we will prevail on appeal and get back in the district court and litigate those. So is it accurate to say you can't libel a dead person? That is that is accurate. And, and, and what made our case innovative, to the extent it was innovative, I don't think it was terribly innovative, but if you're going to call it innovative, it's that we were using a different tort. That's a tort, libel, slander, our torts. We're using this intentional infliction tort, according to Fox, to circumvent the prohibition on bringing a libel case against, on behalf of a dead person. Mm. We said we're not seeking any damages on behalf of the dead person. We have live people who've suffered terribly. So we say we're not doing that. They said we were. Judge didn't reach that. I wish we were here to talk about, you know, our depositions upcoming of Sean Hannity and Newt Gingrich and Lou Dobbs, <laughs> all of which will occur if we win on appeal sure. and go back to the district court. But it is lamentable and, 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 and these, it's, it's horrible for the parents. I mean, yeah, put aside yeah. whether it's legally cognizable or not. Can you imagine for a New York second being those parents? You've lost your child and it's like he's killed again and again every yeah. time someone spreads a lie. That's pretty terrible. I have another question to go back to our talk about Elon Musk tweeting, and, th- and this gets kind of directly to First Amendment, 
Elon Musk tweeting about, you know, selling a company and having the, the value for it. The current occupant of the White House has a predilection for making statements about publicly held companies on Twitter to the detriment of their stock prices, right? Those move up and down based on, you know, uh, Harley Davidson, right? Great example, in a very public spat with the president about moving production overseas in response to tariff actions that his government have put into place. My questions are, as the head of uh, the U.S. government, my assumption was that the president of the United States always has the obligation the, the obligation to say the least about ongoing criminal investigations or publicly held companies because he's the head of the very government that the First Amendment protects people from. And the same government that is regulating those Precisely. markets. Correct. I mean, he's nominally the head of, the of head all of those the organizations. The head, the head of the SEC. Right. You know, I guess it is up to each of those companies to decide whether they would want to take up a suit against the president of the United States for damages or against the United States government. I mean, are those <laughs> grounds? My, I, I always have these conversations with uh, with people that are like, I can't believe you can get away with saying that as the president of the United States. And it's, from a First Amendment lawyer perspective, what is your feeling on that? I think the problem is a purely legal matter because we can agree that it is brutally irresponsible and reckless. But, you know... We don't right. have enough time in your podcast to talk sure. about all the brutal and that and that's reckless. that's kind of beside the point. I mean, okay. like, I, I'm just talking straight. Here, here's the legalese. problem. Here's yeah. the problem: is that most actions in government, um, in fact, I, I I would dare I say almost all, and maybe all actions in government, basically get immunity from culpability like that. So, mm. for example, I'm a U.S. senator. I give a speech on the floor saying we need to regulate the crap out of Company X because I have learned that they are employing people at a below minimum wage and so forth. That sure. stock tanks. There's a privilege, literally they call it a privilege, or an immunity attached to the deliberative legislative process. Sure. And, and you could argue, and I think you'd probably be right, that the president articulating something similar is is An essentially the same. And what makes it a, a complicated or not complicated, what makes it disappointing is even if the president had no interest in doing anything legislative, even if he was punishing a company because their CEO said something bad about him, mm -hmm. the immunity – we don't want courts second-guessing why a legislature or the president did something. And so you kind of get a blank slate okay. or blank check. Thank you for that. I, I really never knew that. It's, so. it's, it, but it is, I mean, look, not to, we don't have time in your podcast to talk about this, but you know, just, there's so many ways in which the government can mess with businesses yeah. that we can't do anything about. And of course, I guess the answer is vote them out. Yeah. Sure. I mean, there's, there's, an, there's the ultimate mechanism, yeah. right? <laughs> well, the assumption too, is that, you know, the way we have checks and balances set up is the assumption is that um, these different branches of government will protect their own rights and- sure. Uh, that's not happening right. right now. So, I mean, that's that. We've made a false assumption that 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 we were safe in that regard. That the checks and balances would hold. Yeah. But, well, however, though, that the, the ch ultimate check is the vote, right? So, the, if you want until the, the, until the Russians, of course, well, hack all the voting. Machines. Well, and then that gets whole all the way <laughs> back to that. Facebook. <laughs> See, but you know, even if the Congress were checking a balance or a court checking a balance. I mean, who among us thinks the president's going to do anything different the next two years, at yeah. least with respect to his Twitter? Sure. I mean, he's going to trash companies that don't like him. He's going to sure. trash people. I mean, that's well, that's part that's part of that character. Of course, right? the yeah. uh, 
the president has violated Twitter's terms of service or decency clauses as much as Alex Jones ever had. But he's good for business. Wouldn't it be incredible if one of them, one of those companies... Deplatformed the president. Deplatformed the president. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nuclear? Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing, though, is yeah, what I what I thought was fascinating last week was that uh, Jack Dorsey, head of uh, Twitter, was they were totally fine with with, with keeping Infowars up until he was directly confronted last week by Alex Jones, and then like two oh, days later, right? two days later, they were off Twitter. Uh, all politics uh, is local. Uh, right. Totally. <laughs> Totally. So he, this was that he and Sheryl Sandberg were next to each other testifying about something last week. Yeah, right? they were only they because were... Google didn't show up to sit in the middle. Yeah. Nice. You know, again, I think that it's it's a very interesting time in terms of what is the commons, like what is what serves as a public utility, and and when do these companies get some amount of regulation put on them? And it, it seems, I agree with you, Justin, like a matter of time because it's like Facebook's like the telephone in a way. Right. Or it's like any of these other, except it is more connective than even that well, service. Interestingly, that that was really the, the brilliance of Mark Zuckerberg when both Facebook and Twitter were in their, you know, 150 million to 200 million active daily users. Twitter actively changed their stance and decided we, we don't want to be infrastructure. We don't want to be the mm. dial tone of the Internet because that's the money's in publishing, so to speak, is their philosophy. And Zuckerberg was on the other side of that saying, no, 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 we'll get the rest of it. I want to be the dial tone of the internet. I want to be the place where... You have to go. You ha- Not just you have to go. It's so damn easy. Like, if you remember, you could use the Facebook like button everywhere, right? Right. They would let anybody put on, like, hooks to Facebook into their own site. So you could put a like button on our blog and... Someone clicks like on our blog, their Facebook account would post that they liked it, and like all of these hooks were built in. And they actively decided, we want to be the pipes that make things go. And you've seen what happened with their growth, and Twitter, you know, who made this decision that that was not dignified enough for them, have not literally haven't grown since. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I would imagine that the government is going to leave Twitter alone because they're just unimportant. I mean, mm-hmm. they're influential, but really unimportant. Facebook, however, has the reach and the penetration into the markets that I think that, you know, really will, will increase scrutiny. People hate Twitter because right now uh, Trump is making it, you know, top of people. Anytime he tweets, it gets on every single news outlet. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, I don't go to Twitter anymore. Right. I mm-hmm. know right. a lot of people who don't go to Twitter anymore. So... It's not like the pulse of society like Facebook is. Is it is it a purveyor of you know extreme speech in the same way that Facebook has been accused of? I assume it is. I think it's oh, more yeah. polarized. More polarized in in the Twitter space for sure. So it's interesting to your point, the government may or may not want to regulate Twitter. You're saying no because its reach isn't as great. And I at least hypothesize that well, be if they really are after the hate speech, it's there and they're kind of in spades, right? Yes, but I think uh, ultimately it's much more difficult for that platform to be manipulated and you know turn an election hmm. than than Facebook, which has way more sophisticated targeting. They have a much richer user profile information. They know what party you're in. They know what media outlets you like. They know what kind of stories you like. And they, until recently, they allowed anybody, including you know 
Russians to come in and buy political advertising. And what most people don't remember is Facebook actually lobbied to be exempt from the the foreign money. I know you can tell me what this is mm. called. Uh, political ad restrictions. Huh. I didn't know they, that. They lobbied and got an exemption. You raised an interesting point, which I guess I hadn't thought of, but shame on me, which is the other way in which the government can is going to get its hands in here is these privacy concerns. I mean, they, sure. I mean, that's it's ripe for that. And and we might all agree. I mean, no matter almost no matter how anti-government regulation you'd be is that we've we've got to the point where the information a private company is 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 carrying about us and knows about us and can monetize mm-hmm. government it is interested and is going to do something. Yeah. Well, right. and we've talked about this a couple podcasts ago. You know, there's a few ways to do that, right? One is in terms of regulating privacy. One is that the the person is the controller of their own information, right? So this is the difference between the United opt States. Opt in and opt out. Yeah. This is the difference between the United States posture toward privacy and Europe's, right? Europe's posture is the individual's data is their own and they get to decide who has it and who doesn't and how they use it. The United States posture, um, just in aggregate, is that the collector of the data owns the data. It doesn't seem like a far stretch to say that at some point, if people could charge companies for the privilege of accessing their data record files and say, this company can have this and this company can have that, and there's an easy way to do it, well, then it immediately starts to put a, a, a sort of levy or tax against those companies for doing business, right? Yeah, that was I, a really a roundabout <clears throat> way of saying what you said a couple weeks ago. Weeks ago. Well, and, and you know, the other thing that I really believe is the GDPR in all of its, you know, <laughs> uh, seeming uh, largesse to the, the, the populace is really a, a kind of a backdoor taxing scheme yeah. for these large Internet companies that are all American. Some of your viewers might ask you, what is GDPR? General Data Protection Regulation. It was a law passed by the EU ah. um, that took effect this past spring. But there's some interesting statistics. When you look at the largest revenue-generating internet companies, none of them are European. And so they're collecting all this revenue in Europe. They're not being taxed. And when you look at... There's no mechanism for, for actual people to start managing this data in any easy fashion. But there's a really easy way for the EU to levy massive fines on these companies. So it just struck me as, well, that's nice that you're saying it's for me as a consumer. But it just struck me as, oh, you really want (laughs) to increase the tax base in these companies you think are getting a free ride through Europe, which maybe they are. But but then just figure out a way to... It is this lowest, I mean, lowest or highest common denominator problem. I mean... the at some point regulations from one nation into another become impractical for a company to distinguish right. of course these are the world's greatest tech companies and so they probably are doing their darndest to distinguish but you know it's like a given state that does x y and z more aggressively for auto safety sure there are limits on that under the commerce clause but the idea is you know when california says you got to do x most of the auto companies say, well, auto emissions say, yeah. like, I'm going to meet that because I'm not going to make two cars, one for California, one not. And right. I'm not going to forego the California market. That's why you have safer cars and why Texas gives us uh, textbooks that are, you know, questionable in yeah. their academic rigor. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, your point, and I know you guys, it's it's nursery school for you, but I'm always struck by the the cliche about, you know, if you're not getting charged for it, 
you know, you're the product. Oh, for right? sure. I've, I've and been... so to Justin Jurek's point, I mean, they're, to some extent, they are giving us something. Mm-hmm. It's just, we've been assuming it has no value. Right. And in fact, oh, they're getting paid for it. A tremendous value. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's the, trillions it's of to, to the tunes <laughs> of trillions of dollars. You know, yeah. I mean, if you think you can really see that starting to affect Facebook on an earnings level, they've had to on the fly recalibrate, you know, in response to Cambridge Analytica stuff, all your data was kind of free to whomever asked for it, regardless of what you told Facebook. They've had to kind of rejigger what different ad buyers are able to see and what different software vendors are able to see that are using their services on the fly. It's been, I think it's been a little bumpy for them over the course of the last year. And again, they're trying to be preemptive about locking that down to avoid the very regulations we've been talking about here, right? To avoid the government kind of coming in with a heavier hand. Or at least to provide the illusion that they're locking it down. I think that's, that's probably more the case. Because to fight off the... To fight off the regulation, but mm-hmm. they still need a product that is, you know, irresistible to marketers and or anyone who wants to promote an idea, a product, a service on these platforms, right? So when you could micro-target down to people with a certain profession, with a certain income level, with their political party, with their, you Mm -hmm. know, all the way down to these very precise details, let's say it's an efficiency boon for a marketer. But you can also think of, and and I don't know whether what I'm saying intellectually or, or is too academic and it doesn't have any application, but if you're the first mover... It's often the case that you're really in favor of a bunch of regulation once your market share is ensconced. Mm. And so I'm in, I can withstand the costs that come with it. Oh, yeah, regulate the crap out of us now because you upstart try to make it past that. What I think is an interesting kind of side effect of all the scrutiny is that one of Facebook's kind of excuses too is that we're really not that big. There's a lot of fake accounts, which of course the marketers now are saying, wait, excuse me? Pay me. I yeah. pay yeah. less. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting how it all kind of plays out. I don't think anyone has a crystal ball, but I have to assume that they're going to have to make targeting less precise because of privacy concerns, because mm-hmm. of governmental concerns. I don't know. We'll see. They can afford to pay a lot of fines. That is certainly true. Uh, where it's interesting to watch now is generationally, like Gen Z is not signing up for Facebook. Yeah, and, and, and there was just another article out yeah. about this that they're the or and then people who have just actively turned it off. Yeah, um, I saw another article recently that was basically saying the people who know most about how Facebook works are the most likely to have stopped using it. Hmm. I have to say my usage has plummeted. I guess I know what everyone I went to high school looks like now. <laughs> so <there's, laughs> it's locked in. Yeah. So that, you don't need the, yeah. the pictures and, and the they're updates. Not, they're not getting any younger. Yeah. Uh, I'm no. not. I was going to say yeah. that. None yeah, of us yeah. are. I yeah. think I am, but that's another. Good for you. That's the fountain of youth over Yeah, there. it's great. <laughs> Wonderful. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I do think it's going to decline. You're just not that cool forever, right? So right. There's, it's too easy for another destination to pop up. Yep. Um, Which, again, interesting point. I know that's not your purpose in saying so, but, you know, again, the Milton Friedmans would say, of course. So lay off the regulation. It's it's they're going to be yesterday's news without you doing anything. Yeah. Uh, but uh, until we have a, a full time dictatorship in the States because we, you know, didn't quite catch that in time. Yeah, well, that's true. We are. It's a dangerous game. It's a dangerous <laughs> game. Wow. And as usual for this podcast, we always end on a crushingly pessimistic note. <laughs> 
Well, thanks for coming in, Lenny. My pleasure. It was Thank great to talk to you and, and to learn a bit. Uh, I don't know about that, but I'm going to go back to being just a fanboy now. Thank you. Yeah, very much welcome. for coming in. My pleasure. And yes, thank you, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Brilliant. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe or rate us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Brilliant is recorded at Mignani, an experienced design and strategy firm in Chicago, Illinois. To learn more about what Mignani can do for you, visit Mignani.com. That's M-A-G-N-A-N-I.com.